set that up. Okay, so welcome back, everyone, to a very special episode of the JD Dragon Podcast. This one, it took a while. I'm just going to say, it was like making a movie and then you need to delay the release date because you need to change stuff up. So anyway, I am joined by an incredibly special guest. Everyone, ladies and gentlemen, all over the world, please welcome Claire McFarlane. Hi there, everyone. Lovely to be here. Okay, so Claire, could you please tell the audience of now of over or people in over twenty countries about yourself and what you do and your background? Okay. Just fair warning to those of you at home. Yeah, we've already talked about that. No. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Well, okay. You know that that's really broad, but let me start with how you and I met. Um, so the reason that I know Joshua is because I gave a talk and an interview at the International School in Geneva uh, during um, a time called 16 Days of Activism, which is a time to raise awareness to prevent violence against women and children. And that is because I have a very specific focus to campaign to end sexual violence. Uh, I'm doing it through a very unique way. I've chosen to use sport and Personally, myself, I am running 16 kilometers of beach in every single country of the world with this goal to campaign to end sexual violence. The reason I'm doing it is very linked to my own personal story of survival. I'm a rape survivor and it happened quite a long time ago when I was living as a foreign student in Paris, Uh, but it was this the story has a bit of a twist. It's quite unique. Maybe, uh, Joshua, you will ask me some questions about it. Um, so what happened was 10 years later, I was sort of required to relive this trauma over and over again through a very complex and long justice process in France. And because of that process and how difficult it was um, being a survivor, um, and, and just, I guess, the challenge of the system, I decided to speak out about my story. And so speaking out is what sort of created this domino effect. It, it impacted a lot of people and lives around the world. I had a lot of survivors writing to me and sharing their stories. I had a lot of um, women, but also a lot of men and a lot of children writing to me. And that's when I realized there was a very big problem around the world when it came to sexual violence, and especially the aftermath is what I call it. So most of us or many of us have unique stories of survival. However, what happens after with regards to how we're treated by the system, how people respond to it, the fear to speak out or to get help, the real taboo, um, that is very similar for, for, for many, many survivors across the globe. And so I decided to do something about it. And so I've created this project called Footsteps to Inspire. And that's what I do now. I run in countries around the world. Uh, I have been to 55 countries already, um, but there's many, many, many more to go. Yes, and well, for those of you at home, maybe, uh, maybe Claire could send you a link to see whether your country is one of those countries. I'm pretty sure Australia is it, what it was. Yeah, totally. So also, just so everyone knows, um, because you're probably listening to my, my accent going, where, what, where's she from? I am born in South Africa uh, and lived here until I was 16 and then emigrated to live in Brisbane in Australia. Uh, so I'm very much a hybrid. Um, and so I was South African, Australian, and also lived a really long 
um, part of my life in France and in French-speaking Switzerland. Yes, and I'm so because we were talking. Well, we got talking, and you said that you actually worked for the disability services in Queensland. And I actually, well, I lived in Queensland for nine years. I lived in Brisbane, went to primary school there. And so how do you, like, get your start in disability, actually? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I have to say that it was purely a coincidence. I, at the time, was working as a, a freelance graphic designer but um, and wasn't getting enough work. And so I actually looked to do a temporary job. And government in Queensland is, is often an interesting place to get temp positions. And I ended up working in the Department of Communities and Disabilities. Um, it's changed names now. And I ended up working with a team that looked at two aspects of disability. So one was um, looking at child safety with regards to children with disabilities. Um, and it was part of a risk assessment that was being done. And then the other side was actually with the department of um, what at the time was called DSQ. Um, and I started quite low in, in, the, in the ranks, but it was something I was really enjoying. So I ended up actually moving through the department quite quickly and sort of evolving in that aspect, you know, right to the point of where I got to be involved in writing legislation and sort of being part of certain laws and, um, I guess, improvements within Queensland for people with disabilities So um, or living with disabilities. So uh, really loved it. And that, I think sort of, um, I feel like was almost a turning point in my life as well, um, because I've done quite a lot um, in the area of disability since then as well. Yes, and um, so you've been like running across the world and like trying to raise awareness about sexual violence, and you mentioned that you were meeting with um, different faculty members at different schools across the world to help raise awareness about um, sexual violence towards members of the disability community. Like, have you like have you got anything to share on the topic? Because I just recently, well, I made an episode last year um, talking about like sex, human trafficking and how people with disabilities are like a they're at greater risk compared to other groups because of the limitations and how people can exploit that. And do you have anything to comment on that in relation to sexual violence at all? Yeah, well, look, I, I, it became, um, so I'm, I guess I, I'm definitely someone who supports the underdog. <laughs> and I really believe that it's important to shine a light in the shadows. And so, you know, um, something that became very apparent early on in this journey is there's a lot of stereotypes around sexual violence and assumptions that are made. And, but the problem is that it's those stereotypes and assumptions aren't, actually correct it's what we call rape culture often and you we hear that word thrown around but that sort of is one of the definitions and so it became very important for me to start looking at the fringes of sexual violence and communities and individuals and groups of people that would be affected by this but it was so taboo or it was so like turned like frowned upon or looked away from that um, you know, no one was talking about it in a sort of a common ground sense. And so definitely, I mean, disabilities, people living with disabilities is one of those areas. And so what I try and do is when, as I go into countries, 
uh, I try and link in. I mean, I, I do this automatically, but I'm trying to also link in and focus on specific areas. So I try to speak as much as possible with organizations that are raising awareness or providing support services uh, with regards to sexual violence and disabilities. To be honest, there's not a lot out there. It's still very much, um, it's starting to, it's starting to simmer to the top now. I'm, I'm seeing more and more. Australia, for example, actually had a royal commission into sexual violence or violence towards people with disabilities. And they brought out their report this year. And so there was a lot of, um, I guess that's raised a lot of awareness um, because they found in Australia that people living with disabilities are two times more likely to experience sexual violence than someone without a disability. And that's already high. Like we're talking about for women, it's one in four. So if you can imagine that, and men it's one, well, in the world, just the general statistic is one in four for men, for women and one in six for men. But then if you look then with someone living with disability, if it's two times higher, like that's that's really changing that. Um, uh, they have found, though, that women with disabilities are at a higher risk for sexual violence, whereas men with disabilities are at a higher risk for physical violence. Mm-hmm. So, so that's quite interesting. Um, so this look, this is really starting to be talked about more, but it's still such a, I guess it's such a, it's uncomfortable topic, taboo, maybe is the right word linking sexuality and people with disabilities and 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 it, it and at some for some many and many countries they're still living in the dark ages to be honest in that area um they can't see the link and so um you know there's um a lot of uh, education that isn't being done just to keep individuals safe you know so that they themselves know how to stay safe but what I do like, and I'll just um, maybe a bit of attention here, is that there have been like several works of media linked around like disability and sort of sexual orientation. Like, for example, um, the I've heard that there's a show called Special with um, Jim Parsons, who is well known for playing um, Dr. Sheldon Coop on Big Bang Theory, that mm-hmm. talks about disability and sexuality. And of course, we have the also the um, show, um, I would say, I wouldn't say it relates specifically to sexuality, but at least probably just to get that out there, I'm speechless and with um, John Raspelli, who also was on Big Bang Theory, is very cryptky. I feel like those, I feel like projects like that, and I'm not just saying this as a fan of the Big Bang Theory, believe me, although I am. <laughs> love that show. Um, I feel like it's a, it's a great stepping stone to see sort of like, maybe not like full-blown celebrities, but at least celebrities and public figures in media and entertainment starting to want to raise awareness about that and that through their projects and I feel like that's important because of because I know of a someone who has like Miles Street CP and she could still have a happy fulfilling relationship. So I feel that that's important because that actually happens. I feel like we, we need to talk about it more. I agree with you. And I think what's really great is when we start seeing it in more mainstream media, it becomes mainstream. <laughs> and so and so people, um, you know, awareness is is a really great thing. I, you know, we, we, we hear about it a lot. But, you know, when you start seeing stuff, then you people aren't like, it just becomes normal. You know, it just becomes part of everyday life. Like, I don't like that term normal. It's just like there's suddenly there's no stereotypes anymore. So, yeah, no, it's good. It's great that there's projects like that. And um, so, 
so like um well how would you so like what sort of because i'm pretty sure that well your main thing is sports and i take it like have, like where did you get into sports actually like how like was that just been part of your life before yeah so um sport has been predominant in my life so when i moved to australia when i was 16 i really wanted to take up rowing uh and um so i went i went to a school that had it available and so i began to row um i was at the worst team in my first year you know so i wasn't very good but something incredible happened i got uh headhunted to join a team to go and row in the australian national championships oh wow i know <laughs> oh wow i remember going to the coach like are you crazy i'm like in h team like h like there's nothing below h well they must have, <laughs> well, they must have believed in you <laughs> they must have seen something like but you know like isn't it amazing like your own belief oh. like when i look at it now how i had such little belief in myself um so that was a life-changing experience really because it threw me into competitive elite sport at a very young age and um i think i feel like it actually shaped a lot of who i am today so i'm very grateful for it um and then i've always kept sport in my life um i never was a runner though I never was a runner. And Which then <laughs> I know. <laughs> and you know, when I rode, I used to negotiate not run to not run in training. I would negotiate doing other hard things instead of running. Mm. Uh, but what happened was, um, so I guess I need to go into my story a little bit, but what happened was um the man that attacked me, I was um I was actually walking to get a taxi after work at night time and this man on the street, a stranger to me, uh, came in, attacked me, attempted to murder me straight away and uh, eventually raped me in the process as well. Um, I put up a very big fight and struggle. Um, and uh, I think given my own resources and just something insane, like I was able to actually escape the situation. So it's, it's, I'm alive today. Um, and we found out that he was a serial rapist. So he had been doing it before. There was DNA evidence matches, um, and it really escalated with mine. And so there was a real active search by the police in Paris to try and find him, but they never found him. And so what happened was I couldn't keep living in Paris and went back to live in Australia and sort of had that choice of two decisions. Do I let this destroy my life or do I just put it behind me and move on with my life? And so I chose to put it behind me and kind of like try and forget about it. Uh, and then fast forward 10 years and I was living in Switzerland in Geneva. I got a call from the police in Paris and they said to me, Claire, can you get to Paris in 48 hours to do a lineup? We think we, we've caught the man. And so that was just like quite mind blowing. And I was in that still in my very much my survivor mode, got to Paris and I did him straight away. So if you can imagine after 10 years, like seeing this person, one, remembering them, I mean, that was just, I couldn't believe that. And then I guess that's when everything started to break down for me. And um, it's, it's very hard reliving such a traumatic event many years later when you've also created a life for yourself because everyone has, there's an expectation in that life of yours to keep, keep be brave, you know, keep it together had a high-powered job, um, you know, so there was no room for me to be a victim in any way and to fall apart. But then on the inside, you're falling apart because you're going through all this trauma. 
And so I actually ironically decided to run. I, I one day I was just really struggling. I'd sort of hit a real dark point and I decided to get my running clothes and run home from work. And that's began the running journey. Um, and so running has been very instrumental in my healing process. And I think it's what kind of helped save my life, really. Um, and um, so that's why I use running for this project, one of the reasons. And the other reason is that sport brings us together. It's a really great way to talk about difficult things um, because it's a, it's a very collective environment. It's often a supportive environment um, that a lot of boundaries strip, like sort of fall away. Um, so it's a big unifier. And so it's been very powerful in that way as well. Yeah. Well, well, um, well first of all, I don't want to sound sensitive, but I, I hope you didn't have to t testify at his trial or anything. Oh, I did, but because in in France they have a very special justice system that is quite terrible. So um, basically, in France, rape is not a crime against the state. Ooh. So that means, yeah. So that quite literally means that if the victim doesn't prosecute, they let the perpetrator walk free. That is insane on the face of it, and yep. I, and to hear that from, coming from a European country, because I think in like. In England or Australia, it would be a crime against the state, though. Most certainly. And the victim is a, then um, actually a witness for the state. So they are theoretically quite protected in the whole process. You don't even have to um, generally, you know, in, in the UK now, in Australia, you don't have to be present in court. You can do it behind video. Um, so, yeah, so very different in France because also because it's now victim-led prosecution, the, the victim has to be implicated 100%. You can't choose not to be there. Oh, the so yeah. I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but it's not like you had to stand behind the prosecutor's bench or anything. Well, I was very close to it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was, but, um, but it meant that, so this, this justice process lasted six years. And that meant that I had to be implicated in it for six years. Oh, I am so, so sorry. That's okay. That's, <laughs> that's, um, that's kind of one of the reasons I chose to speak out because I'm not the only person person that's been affected by this and it's one of the really big reasons why then victims don't speak out or come forward and um and i mean can you imagine i'm able-bodied in in most faculties like someone who hasn't got like maybe who's living with a disability of some kind right. i mean faced it up against a system like that how, how do they manage how do they get justice I, I I I don't know. All I just had to say, I'm lawmakers in France. Where you don't you had your she was in the city of love and lights were crying out loud. It's <laughs> I know. You, you gave me the croissant, but you gave her this. I know. Oh, it's okay. They gave me croissants. It didn't. It doesn't change my love for France at all. You know, it's. Mm. I think it was an eye opener that this can happen in anywhere and, and anywhere in any country. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean I don't mean sugar coats, but this would be a very depressing episode otherwise. <laughs> Okay, so, so so um, so. But it's um, not so. It's not just sorry to interrupt you, but it's actually not depressing because I think that that's what the message I try to convey is. I like to give people hope, is that you can move through this and transform an experience like this into something else, um, and that, that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, so it's you, there is a way, there is a light at the end. Yeah, well, hey, maybe you'll be. Have you run at the Olympics yet? Actually, have you? No. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool. That would be really amazing. 
just, just, just pick just pick which country you're going to serve okay <laughs> yes, well I'm... actually um, i want to do veteran rowing so i would like to compete in the commonwealth games at some oh. stage oh wow okay yeah in birmingham okay <laughs> yeah and so like what terminology would you address for because i've been talking about um disability terminology what, what terminology um would you use to address people with disabilities and sort of survivors with disabilities like which what terminology do you think should be used or applied yeah it's a good question i you know i think about this a lot because i don't know what is the right way um when i worked for disabilities in queensland something that i really realized early on in that job was that if you change sometimes people who have a disability if you change the environment that they live in they no longer have a disability not really you know, like, because suddenly you've made the environment accessible for them. So, um, so I guess um, I don't, I don't know what, I mean, you, maybe you can weigh in on this, Joshua. Um, I just tend to use the, what, what I've realized, um, and also having grown up in Africa, it's the same thing with the word when someone is black. Um, you know, if we be, I think if we, all my black friends say to me, just call us black because we're black, you know, and, um, you know, and then, and that matters. And, and so um, I guess trying to find the right way can sometimes almost diminish then um, the relevance of somebody. So, um, so I just, for myself personally, I just say um, someone living with a disability because I don't think they're necessarily disabled. Um because but it's but there is something in their life that can is creating a circumstance where certain things might be harder communication might be harder access to resources might be harder when it comes to sexual violence most certainly risk factors are much higher and so and that is definitely linked to the disability that they're living with and well i'd like to um comment on what you're trying to like with your South African friends because I've that in America they'd be like, oh, What did you just say? You, that's racist, man. Oh, I don't mean to stereotype, but no, I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't agree with you on that because Black Lives Matters, and and I think that the it's it's um someone who's African American is very proud to be black, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... I probably, I probably just got from some people who didn't know what they're talking about, <laughs> yeah. I I, I don't mean to offend anyone out there who's of arrogant descent. You're, you're very proud of what you've accomplished. So, yeah. Uh, and I mean, in South Africa, I can't call my black friends African American because they're not American. They're, they're, Afri they're African. <laughs> they're from Africa. And I mean, um, you know, and like I'm from Africa. And um, it was quite interesting because I've just been in Tanzania and um, I've got really curly hair. And so. A lot of people in Tanzania are coming up going, oh, you from Africa? Like, are oh, you from Africa? Your hair, like you've got African hair. And um, and I was like, um, but you're Muzungu, like you, you, you're you white. And so I was like, well, I'm I'm a white African. So, yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting. So. And also going back um, to what I said about, so like, um, to what you said about like people being too afraid to talk about this, well, like, I've started an art and creativity program called AFA and that, and I was thinking because I was trying to talk, tell you about, no, this, and I think it would be very good for survivors because not just for those with disabilities, but also for those without, because I, because of course 
the PTSD from an incident like the one you went through was that's probably still going to be there. So if they can't talk about, then why not try to move on using art, using creativity, maybe discover something that they didn't had know that they had before, like the passion and for creative for creativity and for doing art. So I think that'll be that would be a very good that might be a very good thing that they could a good road for them to go down. Yeah, it's a great idea. And actually, when you mentioned, um, I'm not going to say it because my German is terrible. A, I'll tell a, you for other, just mean studio yeah. for all. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So when yeah. I mean, I went and had a look myself and I was like, yeah, this is actually potentially a really amazing outlet for someone going through trauma because um, also for maybe for someone who, um, because there's different kinds of disabilities, so someone who can't even communicate how they are feeling um, they might be able to express it through art. Um, and it is actually a very powerful tool. Art's often used a lot with children too um, and, and to understand what has happened. So it can be really a powerful way of um, even just sharing one's story and, and being heard, but through art, definitely. Okay. And, well, like, have you, like, has Footsteps to, like, where to get the, um, did you get the name Footsteps to Inspire from your running career? Is that where the name comes from? No, um, it started off with a very different name, the project. Um, it was called BRA, Beach Run for Awareness. Um, and then I think as I kind of moved very early on, the acronym didn't work because it was BRA, which actually spells bra, which oh, no. really, which implied woman. And, you know, one of the myths, one of the, like, under what we call rape culture, there's these number of myths um, that sort of prevent us advancing in this area. And one of those is that it's just a woman's issue because it isn't. And um, so I realized, I was like, no, I want to be inclusive and I, I need to include everyone. So the name shift happened very early on after sort of country five. And um, I guess just... Um, the what a lot of people were saying to me is that I was very inspirational with what I was doing and um so that I thought well why not use the words to inspire and then footsteps just because I leave footprints on the beach <laughs> um, and it's also very symbolic I mean step by step you know footsteps has a lot of different meanings you know so yeah and that's sort of where the name came from and then the actual organization because it's an NGO uh registered in Geneva actually it's called movement to inspire and so, um, so if something else, another project comes in, it might be something not footprints, footsteps, but it could be, um, yeah, could be something else. So, so like, and well, what I want to ask you, quite possibly, quite possibly, is the final question because, like, for example, if you're in a, if you're in like a long-term relationship, like if you're someone who has a disability and you're in a long-term relationship, like what are some warning signs that people could, well, not just people with disabilities, but really anyone, like what are some warning signs you could look out for? Like, because your sign could be someone you've known for years and you didn't know they had that type, that type of drive or those intentions when they were around. Yeah. yeah so what are some warning signs and what's okay. some helplines actually as well? Yeah, so look, I'm, I'm going to go back two steps a little bit and um, interrupt me if you have a question, if it leads into a question, because um, I think it's important to talk about the risk factors as well first. 
um, with regards to someone, potentially, particularly someone with a disability. So there's a, um, re the research is now showing and, and the um, stats that are coming through is that someone with a disability is most likely to be sexually abused in some way by someone they know. And, um, and, and much more than someone without a disability. Because if you think about it, um, many people are in a situation where they have maybe carers. Uh, and um, if some people are actually even in some form of institution, they will be seeing so many different carers, even just in the space of a day. Um, there's also the, um, a lot of touching, you know, so, so if someone may not be able to physically be able to take care of themselves so they rely on another human that's going to touch them um, and constantly be in contact with their body so that notion of consent is very confusing um, and uh, there's also I guess sort of a requirement for someone with a disability to be compliant you know because otherwise if they can't be cared for then they may it might become life-threatening um, there's also the fear of so what they're finding is particularly in situations where sexual abuse is happening, there is the threat to take away the care as well. And so, um, so that's why a lot of people with disabilities don't speak out because they're afraid that then they will um, either be vulnerable or lose tools or access to care that they've had as well. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of risk factors, you know, um, meaning that the community is very vulnerable um yeah because and, it creates a uh, yeah me, because i was going to say because it, you're implying that and i've known this for a while obviously because it creates sort of a power balance like a power sort of feudal style relationship if i could use a better term definitely and look sexual that's what sexual abuse is it's an abuse of power um, you know, it's not about sex. Sex is involved generally in some way. And we're not necessarily talking about intercourse. We're talking about, you know, like just forcing to kiss, forcing someone to kiss you is a form of sexual violence. So the terminology now for sexual violence is a lot broader. Um, and, then, and so basically it's anything that has a sexual nature that you haven't consented to. Um, you know, so it's even touching certain parts of your body, you don't want someone to do. Uh, and um, yeah, and so definitely abuse of power. And, and I guess someone potentially, I mean, not, there is the def definite spectrum of disability, but that we need to look at that spectrum because someone, you know, there are some people that rely 100% on the support of another person or a group of people and they don't have autonomy. And then you've got someone who maybe have just a, uh, Maybe you like know, a, a carer who comes and visits your house every other day or something. Yeah, totally. Or like if, you know, if you're wheelchair bound and you can't feed yourself and, you know, there's, you can't clean yourself and, um, and definitely then that position of power is, as you were saying, is, is, you know, the, the potential there for someone to abuse that position is, is very present. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and Yeah. And well, that's what I would like to, well, Claire, well, thank you for coming on. The oh, hang on, but you asked me. I didn't answer your question. I haven't. I've been, oh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean to. It's, it's okay. 
That's okay. No, no, it's okay. But let me let me do answer this one because this is actually really important. So, I, but I wanted to talk about the risk factors because a lot of people go, oh, it doesn't happen, and how can it happen? Um, and one of the things is all of those risk factors mean that most people living with disability aren't speaking out about what's happened to them when they have been sexually abused because they just don't necessarily know how to, or there's that real big fear um, for them. And so, yes, you may be you may be in a relationship with someone who has been a victim. You may be the parent to somebody that has been a victim. You may be the sibling or a friend to someone who's been a victim. And so some of the signs to look out for, um, and I guess um, it would depend on the, the different kinds of relationship, but say, for example, it's your friend, it would be a change in behavior, you know, so potentially um, like eating habits change, um, eating, make, eating more or eating less, withdrawing, withdrawing is very common. And that's just common with a lot of people that have been affected by sexual violence is, um, you know, really kind of going into yourself, maybe not wanting to talk the same way or interact the same way, um, not wanting to be touched. So, you know, like jumping or like wanting to move away if someone reaches out to touch. Um, refusal to go to certain places or to participate in certain activities. Um, this happens a lot with children. Like, so for example, if the, the abuser is in that kind of area, you know, a child may not want to see them. You know, there's a fear um, as well. Um, and then, of course, the other things that might be, if it's maybe not happened immediately, but years before, would be uh, more mental health um, kind of patterns. So uh, depression or anxiety, um, abusing alcohol or drugs, maybe not taking care of oneself the same way, sort of letting yourself go, not showering very often, things like that. Um, Self-harm as well is, can be common. Um, and then if you're in a relationship with someone uh, and you're being intimate in some way, um, the reluctancy to be intimate or a fear or being triggered, that can also be a sign that maybe there's been some sort of history or story of sexual abuse in that person's life. Okay, well, thank you. And um, well, first of all, I'd now like to officially thank Claire McMullen for coming on this episode. And um, Claire, do you have any like um sort of hotlines I could include in the description that people can who are feel like they might be victims or have been victims or anything like that that they can call or send an email to and they could reach out like do you provide hotlines for example yeah look i don't i i there's they're very specific to countries there's not there's not really a generic global hotline that someone could reach out to so i mean if you would like to just give one i would say contact me um, I have a lot of, I have a list of a lot of like, I've been to 55 countries. So I have a list of a lot of different resources in all of those countries. Um, so anyone's more than welcome to send me a direct message on Facebook or Instagram at okay. Footsteps to Inspire. Um, it only comes to me. No one else is managing that. So the confidentiality is there as well. Um, and then with regards to finding a resource, my best advice is jump onto Google or get someone to help you to do it and um, look for sexual, use the words sexual abuse and disability, and then you go um, crisis support or help. And that will normally bring up 
the organizations in your country that are focusing on this. Um, there's very few countries with support services, um, to be completely honest, <laughs> um, that is very specific to the disability community. And there are generic support services, but they aren't always necessarily trained um, to advise correctly. Uh, so we, we do need to actually get more. They really, you know, so conversations like this are so important because there needs to be a lot more support services out there. Yes. And so if any of you are interested in following Claire's work or looking out or checking out any of the organizations he's previously worked for, there'll be links in the description box below. There'll also be links on how to contact Claire. So if you have any questions or if you feel like that you yourself are a victim or somebody you know is a victim or is in all likelihood, probably at risk of being a victim, just please, please, please get support and don't, don't, don't like keep a bottle in for long periods of time because that isn't good for your mental health. Yeah, so thank you once again, Claire. And also I hope you all enjoyed this episode and I hope you all learned something. I understand that it might've been a bit dark. That's sort of why we used sort of the comments we did because this episode would be very dark otherwise. And I'd, I don't like to sugarcoat anything, but I also don't like to make things incredibly, incredibly dark, even when the subject matter is, because I feel like it's, it's probably not going to, people aren't going to enjoy and find it very informative otherwise. So, yes, please, please, once again, I can't stress it enough, and I'm pretty sure, Claire, you might feel the same way. Please get support if you are a victim or somebody you know is a victim, or if you probably feel like you're at risk of being a victim or somebody you know is at risk. So wouldn't you agree, Claire? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Um, I always say tell somebody. Uh, it, um, it, that can doesn't have to be your family. It doesn't have to be your friends. Um, really, as I said, go onto Google and find a support service and contact them. The support services are the best because they are advocates for they, that's what they do there to help you and believe you and listen to you. Um, you can often remain anonymous as well. And so that's sometimes very important um, because there's a lot of different, you know, everyone's story is different. And so sometimes we don't always want to identify. Yes. And well, thank you once again, Claire. And I'll see you on the next episode. Hope you enjoyed Thanks, it. Thanks, Joshua. Yeah. And let's stop recording now. Stop.